You are listening to The Beaten Track, a podcast that brings you in-depth interviews and commentary about sustainable tourism. Are you interested in learning more about sustainable tourism with the insight of academics and professionals in the field? Then stay tuned. Here's your host, Sveva. Good, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our EcoTour podcast. Today with, uh, with us, we have the expert Cornelia Dinka, which is the founder of Sustainable Amsterdam. Good morning, Cornelia. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So shall we start with our podcast? Um, the first question I have got for you is uh, regarding your activity. Could you talk about Sustainable Amsterdam for us? Sure. So Sustainable Amsterdam is a boutique consultancy focused on sharing and transferring uh, best practices related to sustainable urban development from Amsterdam and from the Netherlands internationally. Okay. Okay, great. And when did you start with your activity? I started about uh, six or seven years ago. I was actually doing a master's in urban and regional planning uh, at the University of Amsterdam. And, uh, well, as an idea, maybe it started even before that. But basically, um, when, I, when I moved to Amsterdam, uh, I was really inspired uh, by what a sustainable city it was, uh, at least uh, elements of it. Huh? So as a, as a foreigner, when you come here and you see all these people on bikes, at least that was my experience, uh, I, I thought, wow, this is really something that other cities can learn from. Uh, and, and that's really, let's say, where the idea started from and then it uh, evolved or it expanded uh, during my studies. Okay, great. And as you just told, uh, you learned something uh, from Amsterdam, which is not common from every city, the sustainability uh, which surrounds the, the old town. I would like to ask you, what should other creative cities steal from Amsterdam to improve? Yeah, so there is actually a lot of uh, cross-pollination or learning uh, between cities. Uh, so that also uh, means uh, Amsterdam learning from other cities like uh, Copenhagen, for example, uh, uh, but also vice versa. Um, if you speak specifically of the creative sector, uh, then, um, then I think a good example of a practice or a best practice that started in Amsterdam, which has been very successfully transferred in other cities, is the nightmare. Uh, so the nightmare uh, as a concept uh, and as a program that started, I believe, in 2013-2014, this idea of having uh, a representative of the night culture that can kind of bridge between different stakeholders and improve the, the visibility and the image of the, of the night sector uh, is something that has now been expanded in places like Zurich and Paris, I believe maybe even Paris and London. Uh, but that's really, let's say, in the creative, in the creative sector. Uh, but you have also many examples of, for example, uh, European-funded projects uh, focused on transferring Amsterdam's Uh, knowledge and leadership when it comes to sustainable mobility or cycling. Uh, there's also international cooperation and sharing uh, on climate uh, resilience, for example, on many, many other topics. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think uh, maybe one podcast is not enough to necessarily discuss all of these topics, but I think 
really, if you're going to focus on the creative sector, then I think the, the nightmare is a good example. That's great to hear. You know, this is a question that I usually ask to our experts and our stakeholders, the one that we involve, because I think everyone has something to say regarding his field. So, for example, uh, when we were talking with Berber Hidma, the first thing she said was tolerance. Tolerance was uh, a feeling that Amsterdam has regarding uh, the culture, uh, the people and the activity which other cities do not have. So it's very interesting to have different points of view regarding uh, uh, the best qualities of, of uh, Amsterdam, which is a very different city from others as an environment and decisions and activities which are not common and are, I think, envy in all over the world. That's why people visit Amsterdam. Well, what do you think about this? Yeah, well, I think you mentioned tolerance is something that other cities can can adapt from Amsterdam. And that's much more, let's say, a, a characteristic or a value compared to, yeah, if you talk about the nightmare as really as a program uh, or a project. So I think, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's such an open and broad question. Huh? Uh, but I, I mean, yeah, I absolutely agree that is... Um, culture or, or history or characteristic of tolerance is absolutely something that, um, yeah, that, 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 that is, is very representative of Amsterdam. And if you're going to try to really understand this culture of creativity or this culture of uh, sustainability, then quite often this history of tolerance, but also this the whole discussion about poldering, for example, uh, so how different stakeholders work together. I think those are quite important or critical characteristics for sure. Yes, you're right. I totally agree with, uh, with you. Well, um, going a little bit back, uh, you said you talked about sustainability and I have a question regarding that. So Amsterdam is a city that aims to be all traffic within the municipality emission free by 2030 and to be a circular city by 2050. Do you think that a shift in a cultural uh, sector could uh, change towards sustainability and could help the city of Amsterdam reaching their goals? Yeah, so absolutely. The short answer is, is yes, you need a shift in the, um, well, in the culture of people and then cultural institutions, let's say, are a very important part of that. But this is already, again, already happening. So a good example is the digital festival, Digital is, uh, was the first festival in Amsterdam and I believe also in the Netherlands and I think possibly internationally that aimed to be fully circular. Hmm. So uh, it's a really good example of how uh, within the, the, the cultural sector, in this case, the festival industry, which is quite a big industry in Amsterdam, at least uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID, uh, hopefully, um, where you see uh, this sector taking the lead or saying, okay, we have a responsibility to become uh, sustainable or circular in this case. Uh, and you also see the municipality actually working very closely with digital in this case, but also other festivals as, uh, as, as living, uh, living um, experiments or test, test grounds or living labs, basically. So the, the municipality more or less says uh, if, if a festival like digital where you have uh, several thousands uh, of people coming together, uh, I believe it's maybe 20,000 people over two days or maybe even more, 
that's a small city in and of itself. You have to think about how to manage the waste, how you manage the energy, how do people get there, what is the food that they consume. So all of these things are basically uh, an example of a, of a, of a, of a small city. Uh, if you can organize that in a sustainable or circular way, then there's certainly things you can learn from that experience that you can then transfer to other parts of the city. So this is a, a good example, I think, of the way the city of Amsterdam works together already with the cultural sector uh, to, uh, yeah, to, to, to achieve these ambitions around sustainability and circularity. Okay. Um, since you mentioned living labs, uh, do you think their role in the Amsterdam city is uh, relevant? I do think it is. I think uh, your idea is similar, but I would like your insight about living labs. Yeah, so living labs is actually um, a concept which the municipality uh, has been promoting already, I think, for more than 10 years, I would say. But uh, it really goes back even further than that. So basically, the, the living lab concept is more or less uh, about learning and experimentation. Uh, and I think Amsterdam is a good example of a city that really has that in its DNA. So this willingness to experiment uh, and to learn uh, and also to not be afraid to, to make mistakes and to, to learn from those mistakes and to share that is I think something that is quite difficult for cities to do in general, because uh, if you experiment and you make mistakes, there's a lot of public scrutiny usually. So this is one of the reasons why cities are not typically, or, or governmental organizations in general, are not very open um, to experimentation. But Amsterdam, I think, is a city where you, you are, of course, it always depends a little bit on on the department and it's really hard to make statements about the city as a whole because it's it's really a collective of all kinds of people with different personalities and different departments and different ways of working but overall i think you can yeah you can very uh yeah very confidently say that there is a culture of experimentation and that's basically what the living lab approach is and with with this a very physical dimension to it. So in order to really experiment in the city, you also need physical spaces to experiment. Uh, so that's basically what the, what the living lab concept is. I think it's a great example um, to, about people, organization and government coming together to create something. Everyone uh, has his piece of cake and everyone is trying to contribute to, to it. Uh, what do you think about the collaboration between individuals, organization and government? Does it work usually uh, regarding sustainability matters? Um, well, it, it, collaboration between these different stakeholders can take many different forms. Uh, so there's really a, a, yeah, many different kinds of projects or examples or organizations. As Amsterdam Smart City is an example of a program that facilitates this kind of uh, what they would call quadruple helix collaboration, bringing together governments, companies, knowledge institutions and civil society groups. But you also have, for example, Pakasu Spiker as an important organization that facilitates also multi-stakeholder collaboration. You have specific projects like uh, I think maybe the Green Light District is a good example of a, uh, of a project, a collaboration between the city of Amsterdam together with TU Delft uh, and a number of other uh, local organizations focused on 
turning the red light district into uh, yeah, a green light district. So really making it more sustainable. So I think it's, it's really difficult to make uh, broad statements or to, to really, yeah, to it, the, these, these collaborations are so different. Some of them more successful than others, some of them more uh, government led, some of them more top down, some of them more bottom up, some of them very, local or neighborhood in scale, so much more uh, with the uh, with a view on a regional level and connecting different initiatives. Um, so I think the only thing that you can really say uh, as kind of a blanket um, uh, statement, uh, or what I think is special uh, is, is the fact that you have such a diversity uh, of these initiatives. Huh? So uh, I think in many other cities, you have much more uh, the approach of a strategic vision that's somehow supposed to make the city or an organization more sustainable. And I think this diversity or really all these different initiatives in Amsterdam is, is where, uh, where the strength uh, comes from. And why do you think this uh, phenomenon happens in Amsterdam more than other cities? I think it's obviously that happens more in Amsterdam than in other cities. That's why your city is so special. We have a lot of initiative uh, projects that uh, uh, are sustainable, uh, socially uh, friendly. So why in Amsterdam? Yes, I think, uh, again, it's it's partially a, a cultural uh, dimension, but also this... Um, approach of the municipality to facilitate this kind of bottom-up approach, right? So instead of saying, okay, as the government, we're going to have one strategic vehicle, for example, which is much more top-down, uh, more, more the approach of saying, yeah, let a thousand flowers bloom, right? So we're going to, we're not going to just uh, put all the money in one big project, but we're going to cr create uh, small pots of money and create the conditions for all kinds of different uh, initiatives to flourish. Um, and I think, yeah, I think this is, um, yeah, I think this, this, this kind of uh, culture of, of, uh, of poldering, but also this culture of small scale uh, initiatives and this, this kind of decentralized approach, I think those are all elements that kind of contribute to that. But I, at the same time, I think, Yeah, if you look in a city like um, yeah, if you look at a city like Barcelona or Paris, I think you can also find a similar cultural, similar approach. Huh? I mean, I don't think in the end that uh, only Amsterdam has this. I think also maybe like a city like Berlin. Of course, these are all much bigger cities in some ways, but there's also a lot of uh, similarities. I think this element of decentralization is 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 maybe something that's common or a red thread to all of them. So the idea that it shouldn't be the government dictating one approach, but you want, uh, yeah, even if you have a shared vision and working on that shared vision is quite important, but you need to give um, uh, neighborhoods and districts and people and organizations the, the freedom to, to kind of shape that uh, in a, uh, on a local scale. I think that's quite important. And I think Amsterdam does that quite well. Yes, yes, it does. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the other cities that made me think there's a, co there's a common point with Amsterdam, uh, London, uh, Paris, Barcelona. They are big, uh, big centers that attracts people because they have qualities, they have culture. Um, 
So many outcomes from these characteristics are usually the same. There are many people, there's pollution, and uh, it's a the city wants to be sustainable, the locals want to have back their uh, kind of privacy in the city. So I think that one of the reasons why there are also these so many projects flourishing in Amsterdam and smart cities could also be conducted to the several characteristics that Amsterdam has in common with other cities. Uh, nevertheless, Amsterdam has really a lot of projects and I think that's one of the most beautiful things of the city. There's There are communities and individuals with their ideas and the strength to pull them off. I think it's great. Yeah, but also I think uh, a very conscious policy of uh, supporting uh, this kind of bottom-up approach. Huh? So I think Many other cities don't necessarily make a conscious decision to say our role as the as the government uh, is really to actually um, facilitate or support these bottom up initiatives. This is actually something that uh, Amsterdam um, has been doing already for many years. It's actually also the main reason why Amsterdam won the uh, Innovation Capital Award from the European Union uh, back in 2015 or 2016, was it? It's already a few years ago. Uh, and you see actually this approach, uh, this, this, this kind of conscious bottom-up approach, now also being uh, prioritized by other cities in Europe. But I think Amsterdam, yeah, you could say that it's something that uh, within the municipality, there was already this, this way of thinking um, much earlier than in other cities. Yes, it's a city which uh, that is looking forward. It's a city which is, uh, I would say, um, I don't have a word to describe it actually in my mind, but it's a city which is innovative. That's what I want to say. Uh, it has innovation that other city we did not thought about uh, before, and that's good. I think stealing from cities, uh, it's a good idea when you need good ideas. Uh, so Amsterdam is a great center of great ideas, I would say, in, uh, in the end. Well, I will ask you the last question uh, since our podcast is going to end. And it is about COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to ask you, how will the COVID-19 pandemic influence our impact on environmental cities such as Amsterdam? Uh, do you have any example about the city related to the pandemic and initiatives or problems? Uh, I don't know, some process that fascinated you or worried you from this period? Well, we absolutely see uh, COVID-19 uh, have a massive impact on the city and how we live. Um, so that's the way we work, uh, but also from a social perspective, of course, and also from an environmental perspective, there's many different impacts. Uh, how many of them will be long lasting and how many of them, uh, uh, yeah, will stop, let's say, once the, once the, this, this initial shock or once, once the, the pandemic ends, that's a, that's a good question. But certainly, I think, um, yeah, the way we're so used to working from home now, I think it's I really don't see people going back to the office uh, five days a week. So I think that's really something that's going to be very long lasting. It also has a massive impact, actually, on mobility in the city. So we've learned uh, that we can really um, change the peaks in traffic flows, which 
was a really big problem before uh, Corona. Uh, how and, and there was a lot of thinking and a lot of yeah experiments on how to encourage or facilitate that not everyone travels to work uh, at eight o'clock in the morning uh, during the traffic peak, for example. The uh, afternoon or evening peak is always a little bit more spread out. Uh, but this is an example which I think, um, yeah, I don't expect to that. Yeah, I don't expect we will see the same dynamic post COVID. So that's quite positive. Um, if I was to give a, a much more kind of concerning, uh, yeah, on, on, from, a, from a more concerning perspective, uh, something that is maybe an unintended consequence of, uh, of COVID is that this, this digital uh, world that we live in now actually also has a huge pressure on the environment. So all the streaming and all the online uh, so us having a, a video call at the moment, uh, this has a massive impact from a CO2 uh, perspective uh, based on the data servers uh, of, of all of us spending all this time online. Uh, so you, you seem quite surprised. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I, I never thought about it. Could you tell yeah, us about this? Uh, yeah, it's, this. Massive, it's a massive impact. So it's basically all the streaming that you do and spending all this time online. Actually, it's much more sustainable if we were just going to turn off our, our video at the moment and we would be saving a lot of CO2. Uh, also, actually, if you're if you're if you're streaming an event or watching a video on YouTube, if you just actually change the resolution to a much lower resolution than the highest resolution, that's also has a, a massive impact in terms of lowering the energy consumption and therefore the associated CO2 uh, footprint uh, related to to this digitalization. Huh? So we think this internet is somewhere in the cloud or in the sky, but it's actually all uh, a system of infrastructure and data centers. It's also quite a hot topic in uh, Amsterdam and the Netherlands at the moment, how to, to green this uh, infrastructure because it's already, uh, yeah, it's already uh, consuming, uh, I believe something like maybe 10% of the energy consumption in the Netherlands has to do with the data centers and it's actually growing very rapidly. So there's also a lot of initiatives looking at how can we, uh, increase the energy efficiency in this sector. It's really quite important for a city like Amsterdam that's actually a hotspot for, uh, for these data centers in Europe and worldwide. Uh, so, so yeah, so on the one hand, we say, okay, we're staying at home, we're not driving to work, and therefore we're more sustainable. But if I was, uh, yeah, if I, if I got on a, on a bike in the morning and I went to work and I had a number of meetings with my colleagues in a, in a physical room, uh, that actually also saves a lot of energy compared to the way we're all now uh, on Zoom all the time, which has a massive environmental footprint. So, yeah, there's there's uh, there's certainly some very positive uh, developments, but also some more concerning developments. Uh, and uh, I think a big lesson uh, in the end is that. Um, yeah, it, when there's urgency, there, yeah, behavioral change can come quite quickly. That's what we've seen and learned from COVID. Uh, and I think that's really the most positive thing that we can take with us, especially considering that uh, as, as difficult uh, and as, as serious as this crisis is, it's still not uh, as uh, difficult or as challenging as the climate uh, crisis. Uh, that's going to be much more difficult to, to deal with. But I think, yeah, I hope that we, we, we take this attitude of 
uh, yeah, when, when, when push comes to shove, if we need to change and we need to change our behavior, then that is something that we can do quite quickly as we found out in the last year. Well, Cornelia, thank you so much for your insights. They were very precious for my research and obviously for who listened to this, to, to this podcast today. Uh, thank you so much to Cornelia Dinka and we are going to say her good day and thank you again for your participation. Okay, you're very welcome and good luck with your research. Thank you everyone who listened to this podcast and see you in the next episode of EcoTool Podcast. Have fun and have a good day. Thank you.